1: Rock is Lit!
2: Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Halberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristieAlexanderHalberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. Calling all Blues fans, Michael Gaspenny is here to talk about his new novel, A Postcard from the Delta, about a white, small-town Arkansas high school football star whose obsession with the likes of Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, John Lee Hooker, and Robert Johnson takes him on a wild road trip to Clarksdale, Mississippi to visit the home of the Delta Blues. In the last segment, Ray Coob, co-host of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast, another proud member of the Pantheon podcast family, drops by to chat about Clarksdale and its significance in shaping the Delta Blues style and lore. But first, we welcome Michael Gaspini to Rock is Lit. Michael's novel about blues, race, and football, a postcard from the Delta, was published in October by the Livingston Press. He's the author of the novella in verse, The Tyranny of Questions, from Unicorn Press, and the chapbooks Rewrite Men and Vocation. He has won the Randall Jarrell Poetry Competition and the O'Henry Festival Short Fiction Contest. For hospice service, he received the North Carolina Governor's Award for Volunteer Excellence. Michael taught journalism and English for nearly 40 years, mainly at Bennett College and High Point University. As a reporter in Arkansas, he covered Bill Clinton's first race for national office. His stories about that campaign have been frequently quoted in biographies of the former president. A native of Norfolk, Virginia, Michael received degrees from Randolph-Macon College, the University of Richmond, and the University of Arkansas, where he gained an MFA in writing fiction. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this discussion.
2: Oh, me too. Based on your novel, A Postcard from the Delta, I'm going to assume you're a big blues fan, like the protagonist, Johnny.
3: That would be fair to assume, yes.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm curious to find out if there are any other genres of music on your radar. Let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you bought?
3: I can't remember the first one. It may have been a Kingston Trio album. It could have been Ray Charles' album, What I Say. And it could have been Ahmed Jamal's album that has Poinciana on it. And the reason I say this is my father uh, was not a Puritan in any way, but he wasn't interested in music. And we didn't have uh, a record player in our house when mm. I was a kid. My mother loved music and had a lavender radio. And she listened to the lavender radio every night during cocktail <laughs> hour. So one Christmas, one Christmas, I decided I'm buying a stereo for the family which was cheap at the time. So I saved my money, and that's what I got for Christmas. I brought it in. It was one of those little boxy hi-fi stereos. And one of those three albums would have been the first one. It might have been the Kingston Trio, because I think that would have appealed to my mother maybe more than the other. But
2: you wound up having all of them.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah.
2: Okay. Do you like going to hear live music?
3: Uh, I love going to hear live music, yes.
2: Well, that's question number two. What's the most memorable live music experience you've had?
3: This is an easy one to answer. I think it was around 1970. It was when the band was really becoming popular, and I saw the band at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland.
2: Oh, gosh.
3: That was a highlight. I've seen lots of great concerts, but that was the highlight.
2: I bet I know what your wife, Lee Zacharias, would say. It would probably be a Dylan concert for her, wouldn't it?
3: It would definitely be a (laughs) Dylan concert, and it may have been the one that was in Greensboro last spring.
2: I think I remember her saying something about that.
3: He really seemed to want to communicate with the audience that night, uh, and the music was wonderful, and he did... Some reinterpretations of, the, of older songs, like when I paint my masterpiece. Mm. And it was outstanding. How was his voice? His voice, I thought, sounded relatively healthy. He was still, still growling, of yeah. course. Uh, but yeah, he sounded good. Nice.
2: All right, question
3: number three. If
2: you had the chance to interview an artist or a band, who would it be? And what's one question you
3: would ask? I was... Uh, at a bar the other night, uh, and there was a bookstore owner there, and his, there was a song playing in the background, and his fingers kept moving like crazy. And I thought, oh, he's listening to Modern Love by David Bowie. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't keep still during that song. <laughs> Who can? There you go. I said, man, I understand completely. And then I s- started to think about David Bowie and the one question I would like to ask him and of course this can't be done not now anyway the one question I'd like to ask him is how in the world he could so embody exuberance yeah he's just so fresh uh I still can't believe it
2: That's interesting that you would say David Bowie. I've had a lot of different answers on the show, but there is one other person who chose David Bowie. And and actually, he wanted two questions with David Bowie, one with the deceased David Bowie, and then one with pretending that he was alive. So I can add you to the list of the David Bowie camp now. Oh, good. (laughs) What's on your playlist now?
3: I am crazy about the Lucinda uh, Williams album, When the Spirit Meets the Bone, I believe it's the title. And I especially like it. In fact, I love it because I like a lot of the songs, but this song called East Side of Town is a song that's very special to me because I'm a hospice volunteer, and I've spent a lot of time on the east side of town in Greensboro. And whenever I am going to visit a patient, I crank that song up to the max.
2: That gets you in the spirit? Yes. So this last question has become my favorite among the five questions set because of the varied responses I've been getting. Which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel?
3: I would love to see Chrissy Hind featured in a rock novel.
2: Great choice. Nobody has said Chrissy, and she'd be fantastic. What an interesting character she would make.
3: That's the way I feel about her. I think she has a depth and com- complexity that you just respond to, mm-hmm. and the the way that her voice communicates longing to me is uh, is moving. And I've read some interviews with her, and she seems to be somebody who really thinks about her experience. Yeah, she's got an examined life. That's rare. Yes.
2: Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Michael Gaspenny and make sure you stick around for the last segment to hear Ray Coop from the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast offer his insight into Clarksdale, Mississippi, and some of the Delta Blues musicians who helped make that town a legend in music history. Back in a moment.
3: This is Michael Gaspenny and you are listening to Rock is Lit.
0: If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023, where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Grizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. And we're back with Michael Gaspenny, whose
2: novel A Postcard from the Delta is the focus of this episode. So first of all, congratulations on getting a postcard from the Delta out into the wild. I know it ain't easy.
3: (laughs) How's it going? I think the novel is doing pretty well uh, I had a nice launch a couple of weeks ago. It seemed to sell uh, pretty nicely at the launch. It was outdoors. It was at a brewery. We had a blues band, a wonderful, wonderful blues band called Big Bump and the Stuns Guns, who've been around Greensboro for years. and uh, And the weather was very kind to us too. It was a glorious day, so there was a nice confluence yeah. of, of of vibes and joy.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. So full disclosure, Michael and I have the same publisher, Joe Taylor at Livingston Press, published my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page in 2021. So I'm sort of reliving that whirlwind experience of of bringing out that book through keeping up with your social media posts and about your book activities. And it's making my head spin all over again. So I know that you've got a lot going on. Now, this isn't your first time at the rodeo, though. A Postcard from the Delta is your first novel, but you published three other books before, so you're no pro at this. What advice would you give authors who are about to launch
3: their first book? The advice that I would give would be, and you know this fully and completely, you really need to be ready to uh, invest a lot of time in the promotion of the book. And the promotion of the book for somebody who wants to write every day. And I'm at my age, if I don't write every day, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and I always wanted to write every day anyway, but I can do it now. And so, what I've had to do is to push away the work that I'm doing now. I'm trying to write stories, I'm always trying to write poems. And I just have to say, no, 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 no. Yeah. WTBS used to have a saying when the Braves were on the superstation for years, and it was, uh, I think Chip Carey, one of the Braves' announcers, said, you can't promote enough. And that used to make me sick when he said it. But now I know it's true.
2: See, my advice would be to get a good shrink because (laughs) <laughs> your head is all over the place when you're bringing out a novel, especially like in my case, I, this was my first book, not just first novel. Yes. And I didn't yes. know what I was doing. And it was just overwhelming the things that you need to stay on top of and the thing, the things that you need to do, the places you need to go. And it's just really easy, I think, to get caught up in all that noise and forget that really ultimately what it's about is the art because it, you know, it, it, when you're launching a book, that's not, that's not where your head is. You're in a whole different mindset. So I would say to anybody bringing out a book, get a good shrink.
3: Amen, sister. That sounds very good.
2: Okay, let's go back to the novel. At the beginning of the episode, I gave a teaser of what the novel is about. Here's a fuller synopsis that I I stole shamelessly from your PR sheet. Fueled by the blues, football, and guilt, White small town hero Johnny Spink's future explodes when he falls for an African American girl, the brilliant daughter of his mentor, a man Johnny meets and bonds with when they encounter each other fishing. During a quest to the Mississippi Delta, Johnny is crushed by the blues he craves, and consequently, he becomes a scapegoat endangered by racial strife. This is a novel of near tragedy, of near love, near reconciliation, and near redemption. And I know there's a backstory that serves as sort of inspiration for the novel. And I know this because I read that on your PR sheet, too. So tell me about that backstory.
3: I was at a, at a re- registration at High Point University one time. I looked across the room and I saw a guy wearing an Albert King t-shirt mm. going under a bad sign. And I thought, my God, there's a kindred spirit. <laughs> so he, he and I got together. And we started a blues show on campus radio, High Point University. Now, we devoted ourselves fully and completely to this show. We did, we did much more work toward the show than we did for our classes. <laughs> I was teaching it you as a student, and we got deeply into the history of the blues and to our selections every week and to promotion and Christy. We were on the air at least 32 times for two hours every week. Whoa. And we never, and we never got one listener, <laughs> no. no matter what we did. And we put up signs all over campus. Uh, I promoted it in <laughs> departmental meetings. He, de- he promoted it uh, with students. No one ever listened. So we're in the studio on the last day. And and we just started to love doing the show for ourselves. It was a religious feeling that we had. We're in the studio on the last day, and the phone rings. And we always had these promotions, but the phone never rang. The phone rings, and I wanted Dennis to pick it up because he was an even a bigger believer than I was. So I let him pick up the phone, picks up the phone, listens, looks around, sighs, and hands me the phone. I listen, and all I can hear is somebody breathing. Oh, no. Oh, and, no. and then, and then the, the phone clicks. The caller has hung up, and Dennis just yells, a mouth breather. All we got <laughs> all here is a mouth breather. And he fell on the floor. That was it. He just fell on the floor. On the floor where he used to do the alligator to Susan Tedeschi. He's on this floor just miserable. And I just said, you know, come on, I'm going to help you up. We're getting out of here. This is over. And so we signed off for the last time. I remember, you know, we both said, this is blues power. So I was determined. I just said to myself, I want to write a novel about the blues.
2: That's awful to have to put that much effort into something. And it's it's your heart and soul. And you just can't get it to take off no matter what you do. It makes perfect sense that the extension of that then became this novel. And the last sentence of that author's note on your PR sheet kind of reinforces what you just said about religion. Seeking a further congregation for our faith, I wrote a postcard from the Delta. There's that connection between music and religion or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, that I am finding so often in the rock novels I've read and talked about on the podcast that association is in the novels, including this one. Blues is Johnny's religion. But it begins with the authors like you, like what you were just talking about. Would you say that blues is your religion?
3: I would say that I can't live without the blues. I won't say it's my absolute religion because I have, well... Buddhism isn't a religion, so I shouldn't say that. But I'm interested in Buddhist discipline, but it's remarkable how similar the blues and Buddhist discipline are. This notion of non-attachment is something that you find in the blues. Tumani Waters has a great song called You Can't Lose What You Ain't Never Had.
1: baby in that set oh yeah I won't have a problem gun I lose my baby in that set
3: Well you know you can't spend what you ain't got and if you listen to the lyrics of that It really is a song which shows you how fleeting everything is and how kind of absurd just the notion of attachment is. And yet everything is a flip side. Of course, on the flip side, in blues songs, people are constantly trying to cling to things that they can't stop. The, the blue light was my baby and the red light was my eye.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, there you go. And they're constantly lamenting lost love or, or lost dreams or something. So yes. there is that attachment there in that sense. Do you remember when the blues first grabbed you?
3: Yes, I, I can say this. I can't name the song, but when I was a kid, race radio existed. That is, there were segregated radio stations in north of Virginia. And I started to listen to the African-American radio station, WRAP, because that music just seized me. And then it was basically rhythm and blues, James Brown, Ray Charles, all the platters. And uh, what was astonishing to me was how genuine the music on WRAP sounded in comparison to the white music on Caucasian radio stations. And then, of course, there were the crossovers. When you had Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, uh, and then ultimately Jerry Lee Lewis and Bo Diddley, all of a sudden, white stations had to play the mm-hmm. music. But what happened with me is when you went to school, this is when I was in the 6th and 7th grade, when you went to school, you had to make a choice. For example, you would have people at school singing Earth Angel by the Crewcuts, And I knew Earth Angel by the Penguins. And believe me, if you put those two records side by side today, there's no comparison. The Penguins are the winner. <laughs> Mine, my darling dear, love you all the time. I'm just a fool, a fool in love
2: with you. Were those, those early experiences with the so-called race records, was that the gateway drug for you into going back and hearing these older blues musicians? Yes. Yeah. That's what happened with Me Too, to a certain extent. I wasn't listening to race records. Yeah, thank (laughs) God. But yes. But there were other artists that um, we'll talk about, some of them later on, and the issue of appropriation. But some of the music that I heard coming out of the, the blues explosion, the British blues explosion of the 60s, got me interested in some of these older guys. And I think that's the case for an awful lot of people. So in that respect, that was a very good thing. In the novel, there's a trinity of things associated with the divine. And all three are mentioned in the synopsis I just read, blues, football, and fishing. Disclaimer, I hate football. Uh I am not a football person. You don't have to like football to love this novel, That I'll throw that out there. And I'm the first person to say ex-nay on dumping on other people's obsessions and passions because they don't come from a place of logic, but rather emotions. So trying to talk somebody out of, say, their passion for Sean Casti is just an exercise of futility and not to mention assholery. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just folks out there listening, you don't have to love football to love this novel. Johnny has lost that love and feeling for football, though. He was a high school football star, and his feelings about it have changed. That's not his religion anymore. It is for a lot of the townspeople. He still digs fishing, but the blues really is his religion, and this is established very early in the novel. Here's a quote. Every day I go to Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, And Robert Johnson, like a fundamentalist, studies the Bible. Their music is sacred to me, end quote. Well, religions have rituals and sacred places that the devout visit. How does Johnny practice his religion?
3: He listens to the blues all the time. He uh, tries to, um, to, to ward off the world by listening to the blues. He draws inspiration and sustenance from the blues and life lessons, too. The one thing that Johnny really wants, and he's a very idealistic guy, and he's naive in many ways, but he wants to lead an honest life, and he really wants to know, insofar as a person can know, what reality is like. What are you up against? And so he gets that from the blues, and he can't get that anywhere else.
2: Yeah. And the poor guy can't seem to find anybody else in his peer group who will listen with him or or who likes the blues. And then his dad goes so far as to blame the music for some of Johnny's troubles that come up in the story. His dad says to Johnny, I never thought I'd be a parent to say this, but you need to stay away from that music. It's all about backdoor men and mean mistreating women. It celebrates recklessness and self-destruction. And Johnny replies, no, it reveals what's deep inside you. Don't blame the blues. So that goes back to what you're saying about him really being a purist. So the blues becomes this, this thing that helps him strip away all of the artifice that he sees in his life. I don't want to talk too much about Clarksdale because I'm going to get into that in the last segment of the show. But I do want to ask, have you ever been
3: there? Yes, I have been there. When I was in Clarksdale, it was probably at the end of the 1990s. And Clarksdale is a very different place now. From what I understand, I've never been back, but I, I but I would like to go back. I think things have changed somewhat for the better. The Mississippi Delta and the Arkansas Delta are still places where uh, great change needs to occur. But yeah. when I went to Clarksdale, it was something of a ruin, I have to say. Did you go for the
2: reason that Johnny did? Did you go as a pilgrimage? Yes,
3: or- uh, I wanted—I really wanted to kind of worship in the places where Muddy Waters had worked on Stovall Plantation. I wanted to see the Sunflower River. I wanted to feel the atmosphere. I did go through the crossroads where Robert Johnson allegedly not really uh, had his <laughs> experience with the devil and traded uh, his soul to the devil for his guitar genius. We know that's not true. But still, when you pass the sign, you really feel a tug at the heart.
2: Why do you think it's so important for people like us who are such lovers of music to visit these sites where so many important things happened in the music or where musicians that we adore were born or lived or died? What is it about that that makes us want to make these pilgrimages? Cause I made a few myself.
3: You just ask really great questions. <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, this goes to the heart of the matter. i do really think that we feel a debt, a deep debt, to these musicians who really did. They died for their music in a lot of ways. Uh, when you think of what, what bluesmen and blueswomen lived for, it was for the performance itself, because offstage, what did they really have? And so I do feel that I owe them. I, they have given me so much inspiration and helped me through hard times that I it's not exactly like going and bowing down and saying thank you for what you've done for me, but it's not very far from that.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that the music that I love is so much a part of who I am. It's like a part of my DNA. So going to important places related to the music. It's almost like trying to get to know a piece of myself a little bit more. So those pilgrimages for people like us are really important. They're not these silly, superfluous trips. They really are very meaningful. And I love that Johnny does this. And I'm, I'm not going to say too much about it because people need to read the book, but it's an important step for him to take. Folks who really dig music are going to get that. They're going to understand why he made that trip. So going back to the first part of the synopsis, I'm struck by the phrase, quote, fueled by blues, football, and guilt. We haven't talked about guilt yet. Here's a quote from page 60 about this from Johnny. He's thinking, I wanted to kill my roots, sick of my status as an aristocrat and a knight. I wanted to be a 12-year-old blues boy hopping freights. How does his wish to be a 12-year-old blues boy hopping freights, which is a pretty romantic and naive notion, but, but how does that relate to guilt?
3: The guilt that Johnny feels is, I would say, uh, guilt over the crimes that his race, Caucasians, have committed against African Americans, and it focuses on Arkansas, and it could be any other state, really, but he grew, he grows up in Arkansas. There are no black people as permanent residents in his town. There have been a few families who lived there, but they left. And it's not exactly because it's a clannish with a capital K town, but it's just that African Americans in Arkansas knew for a long time that going to the mountains is the wrong place to go mm. so Johnny feels guilty about that, and he's taken a course at the University of Arkansas dealing with blues history and with uh the racial history in Arkansas, and so he's been exposed to the awful things that occurred during the desegregation of Little Rock Central. He's seen so many things like Rodney King being beaten on t v and he knows this is wrong. Yeah. And he himself, at one point in the book, commits uh, what he considers to be kind of a sinful act in that he doesn't respond. And I don't want to go too much into this, right. but he doesn't respond in the way that he should in a particular situation. And he knows, I'm a member of this group, whether I like it or not.
2: Let's talk a little bit about his relationship with the African-American girl, Ray, and her father, who becomes Johnny's mentor. You were talking about not many African-Americans were living in this community. He comes into town, Ray's father, in a position of authority. So when we first meet them, what's the reaction?
3: The reaction is, I'd say, a kind of shock or a paralysis. It's not rage. It's not even uh, hostility. It's the white people in this town have had almost nothing to do with black people. And when Charlie Futrell, the father, and his daughter, Ray, arrive, they interrupt a car washing ritual. And of course, there never has been a black person at this car wash and they pull in, in their car and want to get their car washed and nothing bad happens. It's not a, a, in, in any way a violent scene. It's just the white people don't know what to do. Yeah. They're, they're shocked. Johnny's girlfriend is afraid that she could possibly offend the black father and daughter who have come there. Mm-hmm. She just says, I, I, ne- I never actually exchanged anything with an African-American. She takes this money and she realizes, oh my God, this is a black person who handed me this money. It's never happened before. This is just kind of off, the, slightly off the subject. But when I first went out to Arkansas, it was in 1971, I believe. And one of the first people I met there became a friend of mine and he was a Jewish guy. And I don't know how this could have possibly happened, but he swears it's true. He said, when I drove into an Arkansas gas station for the first time, a guy looked at me and he said, are you a Jew? What? And, my friends, <laughs> and my friend said, I don't know how you guessed it, but I am. And the guy got excited about it. He started running around screaming, I met a Jew. I met a Jew. And it wasn't in a racial way at all. I mean, it wasn't uh, anti-Semitic. He just he was astonished. There's a Jew at my gas station in Arkansas. The lack of
2: access to people who aren't in our demographic means that we other people. We turn them into the other and people that we're, we're afraid of. And that's kind of what happens in the novel. And I, I want to ask you, as a white Author, as a white man, was there at any point where you were uncomfortable tackling this subject matter? Did you feel like it was a tough issue? What were your feelings
3: about that? I didn't feel uncomfortable about it at all, to be honest with you. The novel does grow, not completely, but it does grow in some ways out of things that I've seen. And uh, I feel that I'm a pretty reasonable person. So if I convey my experience or what I've observed and intuited in my novel, I feel that uh, that I'm being honest. Yeah. But I will tell you this: I, my my not novella in verse, "A Tyranny of Questions," is about a suburban housewife in the 1960s, and she narrates her life story. And that that terrified me because. <laughs> Because even though I was in love with this character, I mean, I, I cherished the character. I wasn't sure. physically in love with her. I thought, how can I possibly be writing from a woman's experience? And, and when I published it, I thought, I think I'm really going to get a bash backlash for this. And what happened was the opposite. I was encouraged along the way when I read some poems from this book. Women came up to me afterwards and said, you know, What you're writing really does seem honest and realistic, and we identify with this woman. So I never have had that accusation of Mm -hmm. appropriation leveled at me, for which I'm grateful. But, you know, I'm always ready for it.
2: I'm ready, ready. mentioned appropriation so let's go there that issue comes up a lot in the novel cuz Johnny as we were talking about before is a purist when it comes to the blues he has an issue with white musicians like my boys in led zeppelin and the rolling stones the doors eric clapton playing these old blues songs he really looks down on that when he talks about this with his friend lee lee says it's not an either or situation to like the originals versus the cover versions, but what really interested me was later on when he goes to the Delta, and he conveys a similar view to the lady at the Welcome Center, and she tells him, here's a quote, the words to blues songs all have roots in the beginning. In most cases, nobody knows who made up the lyrics. Sometimes the person getting credit was just singing what he heard at fish fries when he was a kid. That's absolutely true. There are so many songs that we attribute to certain artists that probably originated as field hollers and and that were passed down because they weren't recorded and they were just passed down from person to person. And then maybe the artist who wound up recording it heard it at a fish fry or someplace else and then adapted it and, and turned it into their song. And that's sort of what I see happening with these white guys in England in the 60s and 70s they took those old songs that meant so much to them, adapted them, and the songs took on a new and different life. What are your thoughts about this?
3: When I was growing up, being a purist was really important because there was so much phoniness around. You know, I grew up reading uh, Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield's Look, Look at the World, and so I was a purist about a lot of things. And over the years, I've come to realize that that's totally wrong, that adaptation it's where it's at inclusion is where it's at the, when the British invasion occurred the first things that people like like Mick Jagger and and uh, John Lennon said were we want to meet Muddy Waters and the reporters at the airports this is how ignorant Americans were of their culture at the time reporters said who's Muddy Waters what do you mean This happened repeatedly, and I think that if you read the reactions of Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Buddy Guy, and all the established Chicago electric blues musicians of that time from whom the British musicians were learning, the Chicago bluesmen's reaction is approval, because on the one hand, I hate to say it, African-Americans had dismissed the blues as a kind of submissive mm. music, even though it's not submissive at all. And so they were losing. They had lost the the, the black audience to, uh, I'd say, funkier music and also farther out music. You know, that's when Coltrane really started to become big. And, and you know, Blue Note, too. And I love mm-hmm. all that stuff. But that's where the black audience went. Uh, and they did go to Motown, too to a certain extent, but Motown is far from the blues. You know, that's Motown's orchestral in comparison. So I now have the view that you take that this, it's really a wonderful thing because the blues in America got a transfusion from the British, like John Mayall, Mick Taylor, Clapton, uh, the Stones, all those wonderful bands that were Get started on the blues. Oh, and Rory Gallagher's another great one coming along later with, in Ireland. Well, you know yourself, little girl,
2: you ain't treating your daddy right. You leave home in the morning.
1: Back
2: yeah, those guys brought the blues back to America. But at the same time, I understand where the purists are coming from because there's no way to ignore the racial dynamics inherent in what was happening. And these older African-American artists were not getting their fair share in terms of money. So you can't ignore that. But the issue of um, of bringing the blues to America, I I think, was a really important step for all the reasons that you just mentioned. So, Johnny, take note.
3: If there's a sequel, he'll take note.
2: (laughs) So, Michael, what have you got going on now that you want to tell people
3: about? I've been writing a lot of stories, strangely enough, and that's something that I was never any good at. I spent years (laughs) trying to write stories that really were botches. But I think I finally learned something about plot by doing this novel. So I've been writing a bunch of stories. And also, what I really love to write is poems. And so, you know, I'm, I'm polishing poems right and left and looking for inspiration along those lines.
2: Thanks for being on the podcast, Michael. Where can folks find out more about you and buy a copy of a postcard from the Delta?
3: Well, now that's a good question. Um, I don't have an author's page, and I definitely need an author's page. So what I would say is uh, just Google me. I'm out there. And uh, there have been a lot of stories written about me as a hospice volunteer, which I would love for people to read. And in a way, they bring together a lot of...
2: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that
3: button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
3: Who I am and what I write about, even though I don't write directly about specific patients. And folks... You
2: can get the book at your local indie bookstore, or if you can't find it there, go to Amazon, but definitely go out there and get it. Let's take another short break, then we'll be joined by Ray Coop, who will talk more about Clarksdale and some of the musicians who've helped make that town a Delta blues legend.
3: You got to move, you got to move. You got to move, child. You got to move. But one and all. Get ready. You got to move.
4: This is Ray Coop from the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, and you're listening to Rock is Lit.
0: If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion, baby wedding, life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D R I Z L Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. We're back with more Rock is Lit. Ray Koob is here to talk
2: about the Delta Blues, Clarksdale, Mississippi, and some of the musicians who helped make that town a legend in blues lore. Ray is co-host with Marcus Goldman of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast, another proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Welcome to the show, Ray.
4: Hey, good to be here and always welcome the opportunity to talk about the blues in general, but Delta blues is something we've really dived into on the podcast and in our personal, you know, adventures of music, you know?
2: It's my favorite of the blues genres.
4: Well, if you think about it, it all comes from there. All the different genres of the blues tend to flow out of the Delta.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, before we do a deep dive into that, tell me a little bit about your podcast in case there are people listening who maybe aren't familiar with it.
4: Well, it's pretty much available on every podcast app at this point, or you can find it, all the episodes at imbalancehistory.com. That's our website. Uh, It's grown over the last few years. We're coming up on four years of doing it. And in that time, I wanted to point out because of our discussion, we've done a few episodes about the blues and the Delta specifically. Robert Johnson and the Progenitors of the Blues was our first dive in, and then we followed that up with an addendum to that in November of 2019. Months later, we had a chance to talk to the co-author of a book called Brother Robert. It's the truth behind a legend. It's an interview with, that we did with Preston Laderback, who wrote the book with Robert Johnson's half-sister, Mrs. Uh, Arne C. Anderson. Yeah, she really debunked a lot of myths.
2: That's fascinating. So there's a
4: couple episodes that relate to today's topic here on Rock is Lit. Well, listeners, go
2: check it out. I know I will be listening to those. That sounds absolutely amazing. So the focus of this episode is Michael Gaspenny's new novel, A Postcard from the Delta, about a small-town white teenage boy's obsession with Delta blues. This music is like his religion. At one point, he even makes a pilgrimage to Clarksdale, Mississippi, that sacred site for all Delta blues devotees. First of all, how would you define Delta Blues, and, and what are some distinct characteristics of that style?
4: Before we talk about that, it's almost just like Ralph Macchio <laughs> in the Crossroads movie, right? Yeah. He's obsessed with the blues, and, and just like so many blues-obsessed individuals, uh, they do find themselves at that crossroads outside of Clarksdale, often uh, on their journey. I always say the blues is really a feeling. Uh, Delta blues is the feeling of that Mississippi Delta rural life, hard work. And also racism was a source of that feeling. The reality of life for black America, 75, 100 years ago, especially. Also early on, it was a guitar based form because there wasn't a lot of electricity out there in the places in Mississippi where it was being played. It has a strong acoustic roots because of that and even among modern practitioners.
2: Wasn't it kind of considered a a form of country blues initially?
4: Well, there's several forms of country blues, and that's a whole other discussion. But yes, the whole thing is based around just country folks sitting on the porch playing. Like, that's what Lomax found when he found Muddy Waters.
2: I'm glad you mentioned the Lomax name. Really, this is a style of music that had been around for a long time, but it wasn't recorded until, what, the early 20s? Right. 20s and 30s, when John Lomax and his son Alan went around the southern U.S. looking for people to record.
4: And they would hear about somebody, and they say, ah, he lives down this road, then two down the right. And that's how they found people. That's how they found Muddy. And that's how they found about other people along their travels, too.
2: Do we know who was the first person to be recorded as a, a Delta Blues musician? Because I, I always heard that it was Freddie Spruill in 1926 with um, Milk Cow Blues. Is that accurate? <laughs> way, yes, old
1: Freddy, boy. You know I sure do want to see you long time. You, you know why? Why, boy? And I want to hear you play that more blues like you can play it warm, you know it? And when I went down to the loose this morning, before I heard, go get that, just a ringing, and I know that was you, because nobody else can't play the blues like you played it. Now listen, I want to hear some more. Sam from
4: it, I think it depends upon what you mean by recorded. If you mean recorded and then released by a label, that I'm not sure of. And really, I think there's there was so much uh, recording of people going on, it's tough yeah. to say.
2: I think it's also worth noting that Delta Blues is, is the inspiration for the whole skiffle movement in England that was so popular in the 60s. And that led to the British blues explosion, which is how a lot of us came to those older blues musicians we listened to that music coming out of England and they were in effect shipping the blues back to America because it had kind of been forgotten here
4: well you know what it is it's it's the thing about the delta blues too it's it's really about the rhythm that feeling in your feet it's plaintive downtrodden vocals talking about stuff reflectively the hard part of the life lived uh, and that's really what the blues is, the essence of it. And that's the, the, the distinct characteristic of it. You know it when you hear it and you feel it, like Muddy's long, slow howl at the top of Manish Boy, right?
2: Yeah. You mentioned Muddy Waters. Let's talk about some other big names of that style of music. Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, Hal and Wolf. Who else is in there?
4: Well, Hal and Wolf, like Muddy, started there and then ended up in Chicago where they refined their style. Johnson pretty much stayed to his roots and what he learned in his travels and what we learned in Mrs. Anderson's book was where he went when everybody wondered where he disappeared to. He spent a lot of time in Memphis, so a lot of influence of Memphis and the feeling of Memphis went into them. The people that he met there on Beale Street and beyond. And he he used to get on trains and just go. And I think that that led to Robert Johnson having the most unique style amongst them all mm. because it incorporated a lot of different feelings he learned as he traveled around.
3: This morning, look, you my door. And I said, hello, un-
1: I believe it's time to go.
2: Well, did you ask his, I'm sure you did. Did you ask his sister about the whole crossroads legend?
4: Well, I would love to say that we got to talk to Mrs. Anderson, but we did not. Uh, Preston and uh, Marcus and I did discuss that at length and we believe it is bunked. Yeah. (laughs) we, we really don't think that there actually was a selling of one's soul to the devil. There's a yeah. lot of stuff that wasn't ever discussed then and up until recent times, and we talked about it in those episodes, especially the one with Preston Ladderbach. Okay. There's just some nasty stuff that was hard to explain going on.
2: Yeah.
4: And some people who like to put everything in stark terms, it was the devil.
2: <laughs> well, it's the devil's music, of course. But it, it's it's a great story. It's a great story that has survived and kind of transformed into uh, or uh, moved on to bands like Led Zeppelin. Because there's a, that whole legend about them. They sold their, well, three of the four sold their souls to the devil for fame.
4: Right. <laughs> Let's never let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Of
2: course not. No. We've covered Robert Johnson and talked about a few other major Delta Blues stars. Who are some others we need to mention I know John Lee Hooker immediately comes to my mind.
4: Well, John Lee's another one who really refined his style in Chicago and mo- did a lot of, or most of his recording in electric blues. He started in Mississippi. They all, it seems like they all did. They always talk about Sunhouse House and that Robert yeah. Johnson learned a lot of what he did. And and the guy that he learned a lot from uh, was Sunhouse, House. Uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, the first one. Uh, had a lot to do with what was going on in the formation of all this. And down in Texas, Blind Lemon Jefferson was teaching the style to people who were from Mississippi or going back there. So he became another touchstone, even though he wasn't from the Delta. Okay. Charlie Patton in Oklahoma too. Um, another guy who is, wow, what a unique sound and style. And I can't forget the Mississippis, Fred McDowell and John Hurt and Matilda Williams, There was a Mississippi Matilda, and she was right around that same time.
2: That's interesting. I've not heard of her. And since you mentioned a woman, that gets into my next question. Most of us are familiar with early female blues artists like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, but they're not Delta Blues artists. Other than Memphis Minnie, I really don't Mm -hmm. know any female Delta Blues singers. Do you know of any?
4: Well, you mentioned Minnie and famously she wrote When the Levee Breaks and other great yeah. songs that were transformed later in the 70s, 60s and 70s, especially. If it keeps on raining, the going to break.
3: If it keeps on raining, the levee's going to break. And the water going to come
4: you know i went looking because we were going to talk about it and it's really Mm -hmm. when you're look when you're looking around you really can't find too many artists too many female artists who are doing the blues just wasn't happening most of them were like you mentioned ma and uh, bessie smith did you know that that Bessie Smith was in the dance line behind Ma Rainey before she got to be like a, a front singer.
2: Whoa, no, I did not know that. We
4: learned all about this recently in our episode all about Bessie Smith. We did one called Bessie and the Wolf, and uh, the other half of the episode was about Hal and Wolf. And he's an interesting character. If you love blues music, he's somebody you could read and learn about all the time. But when it comes to the ladies back then, they were more about taking that big stage, you know, with the, you know, more legit than those roadhouses where the dirty blues men were playing.
2: I know this is a deviation from the subject, but is that legend about Bessie Smith true? That she was in a car wreck, Mm -hmm. taken to a hospital, and it was a white hospital and turned away? Okay. Yeah,
4: and it was a nasty accident, too, where she had her arm severed or partially severed. So it mm-hmm. was essential she get care right away, and that was why she died, because they wouldn't treat her at a white, whites-only hospital. Jesus. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Marcus and I talk about the repeated themes of the effects of racism inherent in the South 75, 100 years ago, how much things changed, that's another discussion that we don't have on oh, our yeah. podcast. But we're talking about it in terms of how it affected all this, and you can't really discount it because it's part of the atmosphere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned Clarksdale, Mississippi mm-hmm. earlier.
4: That's the setting for the book, right?
2: Well, no, actually, it's not the setting for the book, but the character makes a pilgrimage ah, to Clarksdale. Like so many. So, Yes. Why is it considered to be the birthplace of the blues? Why why is there such lore surrounding both the town and some of the artists who helped make it famous?
4: I would say that some people say that. And I think it's fueled by the Crossroads legend and Robert Johnson and the number of players from the entire Delta, many of whom were born and raised well south of Clarksdale. Uh, I would call it more like the capital of the blues. If
2: somebody like a character from a postcard from the Delta were to visit Clarksdale in 2022, what would what kind of blues related sites would that person expect to find? I mean, what's left?
4: <laughs> well, you know, there's actually more than there was at one point because okay, you got to go to the crossroads. The intersection is marked very well. The, yep, and like big signs said, "Yep, this is it." You know,
2: isn't there some dispute about where the crossroads is actually located? Some say it's situated at the intersection of Highway 61 and Highway 41. But some folks claim it's actually at the intersection of highways 8 and 1 south of Rosedale.
4: Well, here's the thing. There's going to be different versions of legends when the legends are about things that didn't actually happen. Yeah. You know, everybody now that that movie has been made wants it to be like Ralph Macchio playing the guitar out there in the middle. It's just not what happened. This is the place where it all
1: happened. I tell you what you got to do. See you going over there and start playing a piece. Why? Of course there's a fella I've got to see. And if you playing it right, he's gonna come around.
3: Yeah, right, Willie. Who is this guy?
4: Don't ask me who you know damn well who <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. I thought I wasn't supposed to go down to the crossroads, really.
4: And what happened to Robert Johnson was he was poisoned by a man who was jealous, a barkeeper. And uh, it was Sonny Boy Williamson who actually tried to knock the bottle out of his hand that was poisoned. And that led to a row between Johnson and uh, Williamson. I'm talking about Sonny Boy number one. And Robert got another bottle and it was poisoned. And the word is that he spent the next two or three days gruesomely just going to the you know, to the edge and then crashing out at the side of the road. And that's one of the legends and part of the legend of Clarksdale too, because he's buried there, right? So you've got the crossroads and you've got Robert Johnson buried there. And of course you also have the Delta Blues Museum in Clarksdale too, which is a big thing to see. You know,
2: I was looking up where is Robert Johnson buried? And there are like three or four different things that popped up. So do we actually know that he is buried there?
4: That's right. Well, no, and uh, there is there are markers in at least three final resting places for Robert Johnson. Now, uh, my friend Jess Simon, who plays with the Destroyers, they've been playing the blues and all kinds of you know funky Southern American music for a long time. Uh, George Thurgood and the Destroyers, in fact, mm-hmm. they just got back from their first Australian uh, New Zealand tour in and, and forever. Wow. Um, Jeff Simon is the drummer of the Destroyers. And when I asked him about it, because we talked about it when we were doing our episode about Robert Johnson, he said, To be sure, I visited the mall. Uh,
2: <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there you that's go. It. So you should go to all of the places that are purported to be the crossroads.
4: Allegedly. Yeah, that's right.
2: Are there any well known contemporary musicians playing and recording Delta style blues now?
4: Well, I have a few favorites, and the tradition has continued almost contiguously. Um, A lot of people are pretty excited about the Kingfish, Chris Stone Ingram. He's amazing. Young guy, that age, that much feel, and the voice uh, is pretty strong. i got to point out Kev Moe. He's been doing it a long damn time, and the album he did with um, Taj Mahal um really Tajmo is a really great album if you want to check out m- contemporary uh Delta Blues uh the North Mississippi All-Stars they've been at it for over 25 years and uh, the band's Luther Dickinson is widely held as a very strong Delta player in his own right and Luther and Cody they're the sons of producer and uh player Jim Dickinson who you might know of okay a pretty famous guy from down south yeah now There are some other guys that I personally, you know, really get into who I think play in the style, like RL Burnside, and he may Mm. be the best, even though it's some electric or electric for some of them, it's just the whole way, uh, but RL and he has a whole family thing going. That's just amazing. And the next generation is already setting up to go, uh, junior Kimbrough, who is, uh, underappreciated. And I've been listening to a lot of his music, T-Model Ford, David Honeyboy Edwards, who may be the oldest guy still out there. Uh, But also, this is also very exciting. Now, a new band like the Black Keys really got into the whole thing on their album, Delta Cream. And if you want to hear younger players, people in their 40s playing music, of guys who've been gone for 40 years, go listen to that one from the Black Keys, Delta Cream. Pretty good stuff, including Crawling Kingsnake, which is one of John Hooker's Uh, Yep. Trademark song. So, you know, it's all related in some way or another. Hey, I haven't been to Clarksdale, but I have friends who grew up down there and have been there regularly. It's pretty cool place. And, you know, obviously page and plant, you know, uh, made an album. Uh, walking, walking into Clarksdale. Clarksdale it's because they, they know what's the truth, mm-hmm. especially about guys who made such a fuss with the music that was created by the people who came from there. Yeah. And, of course, they all m- mostly mi- migrated to other places like Chicago and all. But it all started there, right there in the, uh, right there in the uh, little turn in the river. I always encourage people to just listen to the blues. If you don't know what it is, try it. You might like it. Be adventurous. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's fun and rock is lit.
2: Yep, certainly is. Thank you for coming on the show, Ray. Much appreciated. I know folks can find out more about your podcast, The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, at your website, imbalancehistory.com. Where else can they find
4: you? We're also on Twitter and Facebook, so find us there. That's how you can keep up with when releases are coming out. But the website's got it. And almost all the podcast apps that are out there have us on there at this point. That's what happens after you do it for a while. You wake up and you go, wow, what the hell's that? Wow. We're on that one. That's cool. (laughs) That's great. Well,
2: thanks again for joining me, Ray. And thank you to all the lit listeners out there. If you enjoyed the episode or any of the episodes, leave a comment and a rating on good pods or Apple podcasts. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Michael Gaspenny's new novel from Livingston press, a postcard from the Delta, wherever you buy books
1: right to supper. right to be alone. Serving right to supper. Right to be alone. I'm living on living.
2: Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit.
1: Rock is lit!